Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Strumming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year, and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Okay, I've got a case study for you all, and I think it's one that's really going to resonate with a lot of you. And even if it doesn't directly pertain to your dog or your situation, I think there's something in this for everybody. So this is the case of the human, Sam, and the dog, Mucho. And the dog is a very large Border Collie mix. Um, He DNA'd to also have some Rottweiler in him, and if I'm not mistaken, some Pitbull. So he's kind of this big, beefy Border Collie. (laughs) Um... And I first met Sam and Mucho at a seminar in person that I got to do, you know, back when that was a thing. And got to know them, got to know them as a team, and was so privileged to get to help them as a team online over the course of the next several months. So let's just dive into what Mucho's issues were. And then I will start us out in this episode with the four steps to behavioral wellness and how we intervened with those to help Mucho. In episode two, I will get into the nitty gritty of the behavior modification that we did. And then finally, in episode three, you'll hear me talk to Sam and we'll find out how Mucho is doing now. So Mucho could not crate comfortably um, inside the building where he trained agility He also had a hard time creating in the car. He'd erupt at people if they walked by, and even if he was crated in kind of a hallway where there weren't a lot of dogs or people walking past, anytime a person would walk in, he'd erupt in this just really vicious sounding barking, even though he's not an aggressive dog at all. And it was alarming to everybody and couldn't have felt good to him. So it was definitely an issue. He could not string obstacles together in agility, and he'd come after Sam, and he'd grab her with his front legs, he'd hold on, and he'd vocalize. And again, he'd sound really scary when he was doing this. He'd also sometimes just pummel her straight in the legs and kind of go between her legs and bark at her. It was really bullying, right? It didn't feel good. It didn't look good. Um, And I have to say that Sam is an experienced and good handler, okay? So Sam was not this novice trainer that was just confusing and irritating mucho. She knows what she's doing, and from what I could tell watching video and and also watching the training live, she wasn't necessarily making a clear handling error when he was doing that. So it was almost just 
he could only do maybe two or three obstacles in a row before coming after her like that. So obviously a huge problem. She was primarily training with toys because he was unreliable at eating in agility contexts or really any context outside of the home. He'd actually hack and choke on the food if he took it at all. So sometimes he would take it, sometimes he would hold it in his mouth, sometimes he would refuse it, and sometimes he would choke on it. Um, he's a big dude. He's got big feelings. But like I said, he's not aggressive. So I'm not, I was never worried about him truly harming Sam, even though it, it looked really violent at times. He, um, Mucho and Sam were enrolled in a weekly agility class, but this agility class was really painful for Sam. She'd often leave frustrated. She'd leave crying sometimes. And I know that there's a large portion of my listeners who can relate to that. And we'll hear more from Sam when she comes in in episode three. And the school where she was training kind of became poisoned for Mucho. So he basically learned that agility was hard within those four walls and under that roof. And so he got to the point where he'd never consent to agility in that space, even though Sam learned how to teach him a start button behavior and how to teach him to consent to agility. He just wouldn't in that context. And I have to say that this is not because this was a bad school. This is actually one of the best schools in the country for agility that I'm talking about. But the cultural fog in agility, which is Susan Friedman's term kind of referencing how we can't always see our own problems through our culture, is so thick sometimes that you have to get a dog like Mucho, who's maybe outside of the norm, for people to see that change might be necessary or where change might be necessary. So it's a good school with really above average agility training, and yet it wasn't the kind of training that Mucho required. So we're going to get in, like I said, on the details of fixing those things in, a, in the second in this series. But here, let's go through the four steps to behavioral wellness, what we did, how we intervened on each of those pieces for Mucho. So the four steps, as you know, are exercise, enrichment, nutrition, and communication. Exercise, Sam was already doing a decent job. Um, she was already walking mucho off leash about three to five times a week. What we changed was where she walked him. So she was walking him in kind of big open fields, usually with groups of dogs. We changed it to trails and we changed it to kind of rotating locations. And that turned out to be the kind of magic ticket for mucho. So three to five times a week on trails rotating trails being best um and she sought out the really secluded trails so they weren't running into people and dogs even though mucho does well with people and dogs he has a hard time with bicycles and so we didn't want her running into any bicycles so really very off the beaten path places that she says nobody would really want to walk that's where she would go and that's where she still goes three to five times a week again um for mucho so important you know exercise is a really important piece for this guy Sam was already doing a good job and we just kind of upped it for them altered it a little bit so that he would get a change of scenery now and then um, and get just kind of more motion through the woods on trails rather than kind of lapping in in fields 
enrichment. Enrichment um, is basically occurring if the dog is expressing species-appropriate behaviors. And we provided these outlets for Mucho by giving him just a lot of trash. <laughs> so we gave him so much trash to shred. Um, basically, all of his calories were consumed either through puzzling or training. And puzzling is just how I describe when we hide food in things that the dog has to dig through, chew through, or figure out how to get it. Um, even raw meat was packed into cardboard. Sam was not averse to wrapping, you know, beef ribs or whatever in a card in a paper bag and putting it in a box and having Mucho figure that out. So Mucho's crate just became constantly full of brown paper <laughs> from shredding. And the amount of shredding this dog will do tells you kind of how much he was needing to, right? So if your dog doesn't really shred that much, then enrichment kind of isn't happening. But if you give your dog these things to do and they do it, then you know it's something that they need and you should continue to do it. For nutrition, um, Sam was fully committed to feeding Mucho a raw diet. So she did and still does home prepare a raw diet for him. Uh, she sources all the ingredients kind of separately, brings them together, balances them with the guidance of some information that's out there available on the internet. And the nutrition piece was important for me because I wanted to make sure that his refusal to eat or his eating behavior that we would lose really quickly was not being affected overall by kind of a, a touchy GI or a GI that wasn't being fed appropriately. So switching him fully over to a raw diet that was home prepared was a helpful piece for him. The communication front is that last step and it is it was a big deal for Mucho and Sam. So, you know, when I showed up, Sam was communicating with Mucho the way that most people communicate with their dogs. She would praise or say yes and then deliver rewards. She might sometimes say yes at the same time as delivering a reward. None of these things are bad or detrimental, but they are not clear. And so Sam and I together taught Mucho an elaborate marker system. I, Mucho knows a lot of words that indicate to him how to and where to take food. So Sam got really, really skilled at telling Mucho how to eat, when to eat. A couple of examples that I really like is that she's got her stationary marker or her room service marker, how a lot of people refer to it, which is a word that tells the dog wait there, I'm bringing you the reinforcement. So she says hang, which I love, and that means wait where you are, I'm bringing you the food. She also has a word that means come to my hand for the food. So that is a motion, that is a terminal marker. Stop doing what you're doing, go to my hand and collect reinforcement. She taught, she has many, many more than that, but those are, those are two examples. And the one, uh, she says, take for, for go to my hand and eat food. And what's really beautiful about that is that she can then ask Mucho to do one of those behaviors and kind of test his ability to be present. And there's more on that coming in episode two. But if you can say to a dog, hang, 
and then walk to him and feed and feed him and he knows to wait versus take and he will get up and immediately go to the food that really tells you a lot about whether or not the dog is present and ready to be learning or ready to be asked to do harder things like maybe weave poles we did abandon toys as reinforcers for work. Um, Mucho can still play with toys in his everyday life, but we got rid of them in the agility context. Reason being, he's got some really big feelings about them, which is really normal. We would need to teach him an elaborate marker system regarding toys as well, which we certainly could do. Um, but Sam kind of decided food's working well enough. And... You know, she taught him to play the way that most agility people teach their dogs to play, which is inherently laden with conflict, unfortunately. And so a lot of those feelings were not good feelings. So they're not like um, happy, positive, balance, um, uh, arousal type of feelings necessarily. Sometimes they are frustration, um, conflict upset sort of feelings and with mucho they seem to be the latter they seem to be those things that we don't really want because they come it comes out in a lot of the behaviors that we don't want to see so the other piece of this of getting rid of toys as reinforcer is that we need to always recognize that our work so the things that we train the dog to do will mimic the topography of the reinforcement acquisition and what does that mean it means that the behaviors the dog does to take reinforcement will get woven into your final picture of your behavior which is why we need to choose our reinforcers really smart and as far as Mucho's concerned, when he grabbed Sam with his front legs and just um, at her on the agility course, that's exactly how he played too. So if he's playing tug, he's also grabbing at her, doing a lot of body contact stuff and vocalizing. And if those are the, if that's the set of behaviors that we don't want to be seeing, then we don't want to be actually reinforcing those set of behaviors as we go through our reinforcement process as well. So Mucho, he had a hard time with agility. He stopped consenting to agility and he wasn't able to string obstacles together anyway, even though he had a good handler and trainer and was at a good school. We're going to dig into the details on his behavior modification plan next week, and I hope that you will join me then. Okay, a few Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Lindsay. Lindsay writes, Hello, I have a one-year-old Sheba who exhibits what I think is a displacement behavior and was wondering if you have any advice. The behavior was really bad when he was around eight months old, but got better. Now it's back with a vengeance. Whenever he gets bored or frustrated, he starts to pick up and chew on twigs, rocks, bark on the ground. He will drop it if I ask him to, but as time goes on, he just finds another item as his target. Example, today I walked to a nearby taco truck to order food and decided to take him along to see if he wanted to go potty. While I'm waiting for my order, he stares expectantly at me because we're standing still and he has learned that standing still in public usually means a training session. I'm not always in the mood to train, so when I dismiss him, he starts scavenging for things to chew. Another example, when we're walking around our neighborhood and get close to home, he starts looking for stuff to pick up again. Sometimes he stares at me and starts loose healing. If I'm in the mood, I'll engage him and we'll practice the 1-2-3 game, but if I just ignore him, there's a 50% chance that the scavenging begins. So, Lindsay, I don't think it's a displacement behavior, which is kind of defined as 
the dog doing a thing to almost displace stress or displace like an emotion. I think this is 100% trying to get you activated. So the dog wants you to do stuff, wants you to train, um, and will get your attention 100% of the time by scavenging because it probably bothers you and you probably tell him to stop. So you are feeding that behavior with your attention. But you're also not being fair to him because you have these times when you look like you're available for training and sometimes you are and sometimes you aren't. So what you need to do is decide some very clear parameters of when training is available and when it is not. And I would say if you're standing still waiting for like your food from a food truck, um, you should occupy the dog. You don't have to train, but you could do a downstay for which you periodically feed. Um, and then on the way home, the dog is probably saying, oh man, the walk is going to end and I really want to do stuff. So I'm going to scavenge and get her attention. So on the way home, I would also be having the dog do something. So I, my kind of basic answer is that you need clear parameters around when training is available and when it is not. So when training is available, I would have a big clear cue for that. Um, and then when it's not, I would also have another cue. So like with my dogs, they'll start to bother me on a decompression walk because they want to do stuff and they want food. And if I want them to just go for a walk, I wave my hands in front of me and tell them to go on. I also do that whenever I'm done feeding them for something. So I might put them on a stump to take a picture of them. Then I will feed them. Then I will wave my hands and say, go on. So I have these really clear times of like, when I call you over and engage you, it's time to train. And when I wave my hands and say, all done, it's no longer, or, or go on, it's no longer time to train. And being really consistent with that over time produces better behavior for me overall. Your dog is just confused. You have to get clear about when training is available and when it is not. Next one's from Amanda. What do you think causes indecision on what to train on the part of the trainer? Is it part of perfectionism as a way to deflect from starting training or something else? Any helps, tips, or advice would be appreciated. Interesting question, Amanda. For me, um, indecision can be due to overwhelm. It can be I have too many things going on. Or it could be, like you said, due to perfectionism. So for me, I have a whiteboard of that just has skills listed on it that I need to work my dogs. And anytime I go out to the garage to train, I'm just going to cross off a few of those skills. And I don't delete, like I don't erase my check marks. So I might do Thursday training in green pen, I'll check. And then the next time I train, I'll use like purple and then, you know, and so on and so on. And I'll go and I'll look and I'll say, you know, I haven't done X behavior since I used the green pen or, or you know, something like that. So it'll prompt me to train that thing that I haven't trained for a few days. Also, just my life usually dictates what they need to learn and what they need to train. Um, if I'm preparing for something, preparing for a competition, I'm probably going to work on behaviors relating to that competition. I need to get a urine sample on Felix, and he's decided that that's absolutely horrific for me to try to put a ladle under him while he's peeing. So guess what just got bumped to the top of the list? A cooperative care item I never thought of, which is training the dog to give a urine sample. Um so usually it's just dictated by life for me, but also it's okay to just kind of go, I want an easy training day. And so I'm going to just train something that is easy for me today. Um, and if that is all three of my dogs are on stations getting fed for just being on stations, sometimes that's what it is. 
And last one comes from Susan. And then there are follow-up questions from Lucy and Abby around the same topic. So I'm going to read through everything here and then try to answer it all. Here we go. Susan writes, my collie is quite touch slash body sensitive and hated her first harness that looking back, I did not properly introduce her to. I've spent quite a while with a new harness breaking down the behavior and now she's eager to put it on. However, it's a rough wear and in her mind, it's too much touching. <laughs> when finally strapped on, we will often freeze and act as though she will. Sorry, it says we, but... Um, uh, yeah, anyway, the dog will act as though she can't easily move with it on even though it fits her great. We've just gotten to the fully stopped, uh, strapped on stage. Any tips on how to get an adult dog desensitized to touch or harness? And then Lucy follows up. I have this exact same issue and would also love to hear tips, tricks, advice. I also struggle with the no choice. You need to wear the harness for our walks, recovering from an injury. So no off leash right now. And also getting him to you, getting him used to wanting to wear the harness at the same time. Is it best to have two separate harnesses and use a different one for each situation? And then Abby uh, chimes in. So this is obviously a thing. I have a very similar question to Susan's. My one and a half year old hound mix needs to be walked on a harness as she's reactive. But she also goes into shutdown mode, freezing tail tuck, not responding to cues when I put a harness on. I've tried multiple harness types and I progress from having her target it to putting her head through um, and standing still lie fast and everything. But once it's on, she's miserable. I can rush her through the process and take her outside where she'll completely forget about it after a minute. But when I've tried this, it's led to her acting fearful anytime I get the harness out. Conversely, she's happy when I get out her leash and collar, but it's far safer for her to be in the harness. At what point does this become a no-choice issue, or will it do more harm than good to make her face potential triggers in equipment that already seems overstimulating to her? Okay, so the first thing I need to say, y'all, is that the learner is who decides what's aversive and what's not. We all like harnesses because they are the quote unquote nice tool. But if you saw somebody putting on um, a prong collar and the dog was acting the way that some of these dogs are acting with a harness on, we would all clutch our pearls and gasp at the cruelty of that prong collar. When in reality, if the dog is acting like this in any piece of equipment, like we, our bias should not be weighing in here. If the dog is truly that horrified by a body harness, I am not going to use it. Um, to me, it is not worth that kind of stress. I'm going to say full disclosure with my puppies. I tend to slap a harness on them the second they come home and they just wear it 24 seven until they're over it. I've never had a puppy panic about that. True panic would would break that rule for me. I would definitely take it off if the puppy was truly panicking. But um, rather than going through this long process of teaching them to put it on themselves, that's what I do in reality. If I have a dog that's already got a problem and I need to teach them to put on a piece of clothing, I may... Um, I may do that. I may go through that process. And it sounds like all of you do need to teach the dog to cooper cooperatively put on the thing. But I also think you need to think hard about your equipment choices. They just might not be the right choices for these dogs. Um, if you are really bothered by a neck collar, you can certainly use, um, you can certainly use a head collar. There are different harnesses that dogs are tend to be less averse to than others. 
Um, but they do tend to be those ones that everybody thinks are too shoulder restrictive. So like a Julius canine or a brilliant canine harness, um, does cut right across the shoulders, but it's very easy for the dog to put his head right through. And then it's just one buckle. So it's a lot easier. The putting on process is if it is truly seeming like a sensory issue, like Susan's dog, it feels like it's sensory. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was because we have a border collie here. I would try other things like if, you know, can the dog wear the harness if they're also wearing a thunder shirt under the harness? Can the dog wear a thinner, kind of less invasive harness? Because the rough wear is pretty, pretty chunky, pretty thick. I would be asking all of these questions of the dog. And if my dog was happy to put on a martingale collar and a leash and go for a walk, but really horrified by the harness, then y'all, I would just stick with the martingale. Um, this is one of those things that if the dog finds it that aversive, then to me, it's not worth trying to fix because there's plenty of other equipment that I can use. Could you go through a whole process of counter conditioning, um, and, you know, teaching cooperative harnessing? Of course you could, but you don't get to also no choice, slap the harness on the dog. Uh, whenever you feel like it or whenever you need to in the meantime it would need to be you do walk the dog on a collar until the dog is comfortable in the harness so thanks to the three of you for your thoughtful questions um let us know if you decide to switch equipment or if you decide to kind of double down and work on this and that's it for this week are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dog Arena and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash Cog Dog Radio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.